Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Devin, you know, today we're going to talk a lot about mentorship and wanted to know if you have a mentor in your life. Ooh, that's a good question. I, I do have a mentor. I have, I would say, two official ones, as in like I say, hey, we're going to have a mentorship session. So I'd say those mm-hmm. are my two mentors. Um, one of them is Chris Orlob. So he's a, a gongster. I know. Him. Um, yeah, I many, you, you do, as many, many folks probably do as well. Um, and so that one came about because he was running content marketing before me at Gong. And so it was actually going to end up, I was going to be working with him and then he ended up moving into sales. And so I ended up kind of filling his position. And so now he's, I'd say we meet about monthly uh, to give me some coaching and I can throw some ideas off of him. And so uh, I have that. And then I have uh, Dale Brown, shout out to Dale, if you're listening, he's the VP of business development at figure eight, which is now Appen, which is one of our clients. So I actually sold Gong to him. He was my wife's boss to double down in that relationship. Um, And now we meet, I'd say every 60 days or so. And he gives me uh, leadership advice as I'm a new manager. So he specifically gives me, um, you know, insights and coaching around that. Oh, that's so nice. Did you actually meet him by selling to him? Is that the first time you interacted with him? So to be fair, I've been to multiple figure eight Christmas parties because Charlie's been there for a while. So I would meet him at like, you know, very casual, a couple drinks or three. And then we ended up uh, selling to him. And then we kind of just like a bit of a friendship. And then I kind of just asked like, hey, like I'm moving into management. I know you've got tons, you know, a lot of experience. I really enjoyed working with you and seeing how you manage your team. Uh, would you be open to, you know, meeting with me periodically? He was like yeah. an emphatic yes. He's like, I would love that. And so, oh, how great. yeah, so now we, we, we text, we go get lunch when we were able to go get lunch. And uh, we'll probably have a Zoom session in a couple of weeks. Keep it up. I love, I love hearing that. Um, and then. Today, we're talking to Stephen Antuna, CRO of Regora, and majority of what we talked about was all about mentorship, which is something he specifically credited to a part of his career trajectory, and he shared a lot of really cool insights of how to nurture that relationship. He's, uh, he's great. I actually met him in Boston at a uh, dinner, at a customer dinner a few months ago, and I didn't know him on um, our first conversation he asked me a really tough question and I can't remember exactly what the question was. It was like a business related question. And I felt like I was getting objection handled on the spot. (laughs) Um, And I was like, Oh my God, I don't know how I came off in this conversation with him, but he was great. He was actually also very, very persistent in getting back to us and getting on to reveal. He had a career change um, like during that time while we were interacting. uh, But he took such a personal responsibility of like he had committed to our show and being on it that he wanted to make sure that he got back to us and then joined us on the show a couple months later. So really appreciated uh, that from him. 
yeah, yeah. You, you, you could tell he was, he was really excited once we finally got connected. It was a really fun conversation. And it was cool because we talked about that, but we also talked about uh, competitiveness and healthy competitiveness and competition within a sales team, which I can say, uh, as most listeners probably have, you've probably been a part of a, I wouldn't say toxic sales team, but we know competitiveness, competitiveness can get pretty intense. Um, and so he shared some really cool insights and some experience of how he's been able to inject healthy competition into his team um, in order to hit certain goals and KPIs while also building culture. So it's pretty much like if you're trying, most sales leaders I think are trying to maybe remove competitiveness because it gets a little snippy, but his was actually injecting it to get a positive outcome, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, totally. Well, let's get into all things mentorship and competition and dive into the interview. Hey, Steve, welcome to Reveal. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me. How you doing, Sheena? We're, we're doing well out here in California. It's, it's been like a heat wave of a week. So I'm sitting here in shorts, which is pretty rare uh, for being in San Francisco. So can't complain too much right now. Send some of that heat wave our way. <laughs> um, well, we're excited to talk to you today. And I know you have some exciting news and some changes on your end, which, we're, which we'll talk about. So right now we're all home. We're, we're still uh, working remotely. We're all at our home offices would love to know what's something that you need to have on your desk in your home office to keep you sane. You know, it's funny. I don't know if it's something that I necessarily have to have on my office desk, but now having been in this routine for a few months working from home, um, I have to be in a room where there's a view. Uh, I can't be in a room where I'm sort of closed off to everything. Um, I'm used to being around people and in sort of high energy offices um, around a lot of salespeople, busybodies. But, um, you know, for me, my office, I set up upstairs in a spare bedroom that faces the street. Now, again, I don't live on a busy street, but even seeing kids on bikes, seeing delivery trucks, just seeing life and, and activity, um, you know, kind of reminds me of more normal times. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that I do to, to make sure I sort of keep my sanity is that you know, you're starting to feel things kind of creep a little bit, um, not back to normal, but where people are starting to um, enjoy the outdoors and, and really starting to get out there and, and spend time, especially in the Northeast where we've had kind of um, cruddy weather the last few months. So it's important for me to, to sort of look out and be able to see that. That's a really good tip. That perspective and, and view out into the real world is, is super important these days. It really is. I mean, it's, it's, strange to to see that you know what could happen over the course of a couple of months could make me appreciate watching my neighbor you know mow his lawn or something as simple as that <laughs> yeah i mean the only other thing that that i like to do you know from the home office um because i am used to being around lots of people and, and i personally i feed off of that is uh, i like to have some background noise you know whether that's um you know listening to squawk box and them talk about what's going on in the stock market or some other sort of news update, sports interview. I'm not really dialed into it too much. It's more or less just sort of other, you know, kinetic energy in the room that allows me to, to kind of feel, you know, the vibe of, of hearing other people and, and being around other people. Some company made a landing page or, or a site where you could put on real office sounds and adjust like how much you wanted to hear the coffee maker versus water cooler talk versus a dog barking. It was pretty fun. It might be a fun thing for us to put in the, the notes for the episode. That's awesome. 
Uh, a lot of times, Steve, we ask folks, you know, how they get their day started. I'm curious how you got your career started and what was the first job that you ever had? Oof. First job I ever had. I mean, that goes way back. I was, um, believe it or not, I was a paper boy, like an old school delivered papers to people's houses. Love it. And at that point, it's, it's pretty just safe to say that I wasn't really a workhorse. I only had, I think, 16 to 18 newspapers in my entire route. Uh, but as my mother is very quick to point out, you know, she always felt that I would be, uh, you know, certain to have a career in management because I was always dragging my friends with me or asking one of my family members to do it for me, you know, with the hopes that I could either return to the neighborhood uh, basketball or football game and not miss any time. So that was definitely the first job I had was uh, slinging papers. Slinging papers to slinging software and uh, master delegator from early on. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I was a bit of an innovator too. I had this scooter, not the, the little razor scooters that you see now, but the ones that had like the big rubber tires. And I would actually put the bag they gave you, the one that you're supposed to carry over your shoulder, but actually strap that on the scooter so I could get going a lot faster get done with it. And again, sort of return back to the ball field or wherever I was going early innovation. There you go. There you go. And then recently you just accepted a role as CRO of Regora. Congratulations there, Steve. Can you tell us a little bit more about Regora and why you made the move? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm joining Regora on May 11th as the chief revenue officer. And, um, you know, this was sort of new for me. It was really a chance to build something at the ground level. Um, I've joined companies where, Either a lot of the foundation um, was in place or it was partially in place. And at that point, you know, with, with sort of midsize or larger companies, as a sales leader, you know, you're really focused more on optimization. You're focused on strategic shifts in the business um, and thinking about how to align your resources based upon, you know, a multitude of factors that are changing over time. You know, whereas here at Regora, um, you know, we're going to get an opportunity to build this go-to-market motion from the ground up. And that was, you know, I think one of the things that was, from a career standpoint, um, really interesting for me. Um, but looking at the company itself, who Regora is, we're a Series A-backed company headquartered in Boston Seaport. And it's essentially a SaaS platform that's modernizing the real estate appraisal process. Um, so just to, to be a little bit more specific, so it's providing more of an elegant workflow between banks and lenders and the other sort of mortgage constituents. And, you know, I've been through that process a number of times myself as someone that was looking to secure a mortgage. So I can really attest to the, the painful process that it is. Uh, but if you think about it from, you know, sort of the lender or the bank's perspective, this is their livelihood and to have, you know, a lot of old technology sort of governing, um, but without all of the sort of modern amenities that you think about in terms of, um, you know, integrations and extensibility. Um, I just saw an amazing opportunity and, and a great time to join the company. That's great. And it's always cool to work for a company that solves a problem that you really stand by, or in your case, you know, stand by and have experienced yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I was going through it and we were in the process of selling a sit, uh, our place in the city and moving out to the suburbs and you're managing, you know, all these different sort of, um, you know, correspondences with banks and lawyers and all these, you know, various constituents. And it's such a, you know, it's, it's a high leverage situation where you got to get it right because all of the timing in that matters too. Um, you know, so putting myself on sort of the inverse of the, you know, sort of the banks and the institutions that manage this process, 
giving them the application that gives them so much more transparency, efficiency, um, and productivity gains throughout that is, is also going to be great for the individuals going through the process. Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of going back a little bit to your career trajectory, you started as a sales associate at Thompson Reuters, then you were the VP of sales at LogMeIn, and now you're, you're a CRO. And I think a lot of times people want to hear a little bit about the trajectory, right? And so for me, I'm curious, like what motivated you from going from an individual contributor to a head of sales? And then maybe some of the takeaways in terms of, um, you know, kind of the skills uh, and the development that it took to, to get to that level. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, I mean, I think back to when I joined Thomson Reuters as a sales associate, that's back, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, to say that I had a, a vision in my mind that my ultimate goal was to become a VP of sales or a chief revenue officer, um, that wasn't the case. You know, I think like a lot of um, first year grads, you're looking to get a solid job underneath you. You're looking to start earning and paying down loans and, and starting this new phase of your life. You know, there's the outliers, the one percenters who know what they're going to do when they graduate. But, um, you know, I think I was a pretty normal kid coming out of college. And uh, I had some friends that were in that industry. You know, they were selling financial services and seemed to be having fun and, and earning a little money with it. So, um, you know, when I think back to then and I think about what sort of transpired over that journey, one of the most important things that, that I have an appreciation for and I reflect on is, um, you know, the leaders and mentors that I had along the way, right? And it really, I start here because those are the people that take the time to challenge you, invest time in you, they take a chance on you. Um, if you don't have that level of mentorship, um, it's really, really tough to advance your career. It's not to say that you can't do it, you know, but for me, I think, you know, that's been one of sort of the guiding lights as far as what's really helped me over the last 19 years is being fortunate and that I had a number of people that were willing to do those things. Because I think, you know, as a sales leader, um, when you have a foundation and people sponsoring you along the way, I think it becomes easier um, to make career altering moves, right? Because you're sort of marrying those introspective moments that you have, you know, as you sort of go through various, you know, sort of stages in your career, you're always constantly thinking about, am I challenging myself the right way? Am I around the right people? Am I in the right environment? What do I want to do next? So you're constantly having those sort of moments of introspection mm -hmm. pop up. And I think you really want to augment that with people that you really respect and that have invested in time over you. And if you keep really good relationships intact, you know, that's one of the greatest resources you can have as a professional is by, is by tapping into that periodic commentary from your support network. You know, so for me, that's, that's been one of the most critical things I think in terms of having long careers and successful careers is, is being able to surround yourself with the people that, provide you good counsel that are willing to invest the time um, and know that they're doing it for a good reason because you genuinely care. And, and, you know, at some point you hope to reciprocate that in other people's career. Steve, we've had a, a couple conversations over the last couple months and uh, the value that you place on your mentors and the relationship uh, relationships that you've developed there, it, you know, really shown through how important and, and how much you value those. When you first, uh, started to develop or even like reach out to these these mentors in your life did you generally find them from within your the company that you were working at 
um, through a network, through cold outreach? Like, how did you identify who were the right mentors for you? The majority of them are uh, people that I have worked with or in close proximity in the industry at one point or another. Um, you know, and I think that it's uh, some of those are just naturally developed, right? Because you have that close proximity and, and it might be your manager's manager, or it might be someone from another division that you have to, um, you know, communicate with for one reason or another. But I think it is important to identify who those people are. It doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, they're going to want to invest the time or, or they see that as sort of, sort of a mutual, you know, relationship that they'd like to invest in. Um, you know, but for me, most of them have come from within my network at companies that I had worked for. Now, the great thing about, you know, people that you highly respect um, leaving and going in a different direction is that it extends your network, right? And I think that's always tough for young professionals when they see someone that they really look up to, they're leaving the company, they take another job, they're moving, whatever the circumstance is, that's always, um, it's one of those things that stings as a young professional. But I think as you start to mature in your career, you realize that by them going to another industry or another company, that only opens up the potential um, for you in terms of being able to invest time with someone that has now exponentially grown their network. So Sheena, yeah, hopefully that answers your question, but for the most part, there are, there are folks that I have worked with uh, in some relative proximity. Yeah, that's helpful. I asked because I think sometimes folks are challenged to really identify who should I go and ask to be a mentor or um, you know, is it more natural? Is it more uh, you know, of, a, of a formal process around that? But I think it's something super important for, and for those who are earlier in their careers, investing that time um, up front, which can be hard when you're juggling other things uh, to demonstrate success in your company, uh, but it pays dividends down the road. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're, if you're out there listening, I don't think you should be shy about it uh, in terms of, you know, it's not like you always have to have a formal mentor-mentee relationship in order to sort of have some of the, those really positive engagements and relationships. Um, those I think can be very informative, um, but they need to be a little bit more structured. And I think you need to be more mindful of what you put into a mentor mentee relationship. Um, but having a really powerful network that can challenge, inform you, inspire you, um, is just about building relationships and, you know, asking people, um, to provide you feedback on certain aspects of, of either your, you know, the work that you've done or the ambitions that you have. Um, but you need to ask them, right? You need to sort of bring that to the forefront. Most of those people are going to be really busy and involved in a lot of things. Um, but what I think you'll find out is that those are the people, at least in my experience, um, the folks that have supported me throughout my career, are the ones that seem to be the most giving of their time, right? Which is counterintuitive because you think of these people as ultra successful, super busy, their time is in high demand, you know, but what my guess is, is that somewhere along the lines, they've had similar experiences that they've been very fortunate and had people that were really critical uh, to their development. And they feel, you know, somewhat of an obligation to sort of pass it down the line. So, um, you know, that's been really nice for me, especially even in this most recent career move that I made. Um, there's a number of people, you know, from my network that um, were so crucial in terms of helping me think through, you know, what the right next move would be. 
Those are great points. I have a quick question for you too. I think there's a lot of emphasis on like locking in a mentor and kind of how to do that. I'm curious if you have any advice for like as a mentee, how to nurture that mentor relationship. I, I think it does come down to it's, you know, making sure that your expectations of them aren't too great, right? Just by having a mentor is not going to change the trajectory of your career. You have to come to the table with a lot of critical thought, self-reflection, and provide, I think, sort of the atmosphere where someone who's, you know, sort of jumping into the conversation every, you know, six months um, has enough context to provide enough value and insight for you, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not a professional coach who's shadowing you. It's someone that probably lives a very busy life that has a number of different things that are really important on their mind. So I think, you know, you can make it easier uh, for the mentor to provide that context and to provide the, the, the level of um, insight that you're yearning by giving them, whether it's cliff notes ahead of time, right. Um, or by, you know, sort of giving them boundaries in which to think about the conversation instead of just a, Hey, you know, we're uh, having our six month conversation. I'm thinking about a career change and, you know, I want to get your thoughts. Well, where do we start? Right. I mean, there's so many dimensions to that type of conversation. So I think that's the the critical thing is um, beyond just choosing the right person is making sure that they know you're as invested in that and you're making it easy for them to, to be sort of a, a companion in that, that they want to invest the time because they see how committed you are. I think we can all agree that having a mentor is a positive addition to your development. And so for this week's data breakout, I wanted to zoom out and see what larger trends are out there when it comes to the data. Now, there's a ton of data out there on mentorship, and I came across a study from Olivet Nazarene University that surveyed 3,000 professionals. Here's some of the cool takeaways. First off, only 37% of respondents say that they have a mentor and 9% said maybe they do, indicating the dynamic of their relationship is unclear. Stick around for the micro action after the interview for tips on how to solve that. Next, 61% say their mentor relationship developed naturally. I can say this has been the case for me as well, but it also means that 40% of mentors are specifically sought out. So if you're in need of a mentor and are feeling awkward about asking, you shouldn't. It's completely normal. And finally, the average length of a mentor relationship is 3.3 years. And given the goal of your mentor is to teach you and development takes time and happens in cycles, this makes complete sense to me. You should naturally outgrow your mentors and find new ones as your needs for mentorship evolves. So let's switch gears a little bit to building a team and instilling uh, the concept of a, of a great, strong culture. Clearly, over your experience, you've interviewed probably thousands of uh, candidates and, and hired hundreds of them. You can update me on the numbers if you know what they are, actually. Uh, but what are, what are some of those core values and, and what are you really looking for um, as you're building and sustaining a strong culture um, in your team? Yeah, culture is a really interesting theme, you know, and I've seen it from multiple different vantage points, being at first a 50,000 person company to a 200 person company. Most recently, it logged me in with, you know, close to 5,000. And it takes on different life forms, certainly depending upon the size and maturity of your organization. 
Um, but it's something that I'm really passionate about and I'm going to be joining a company that is, you know, the smallest I've ever joined, the earliest I've ever joined. So culture becomes really, really important. And, um, you know, I think one of the things I've learned over the years is for culture to work, it has to be authentic. And the people that are, are really concerned and, and committed to making sure there's a strong culture, they have to be present and active participants. You know, those are some of the key themes that, um, you know, are, as I'm thinking about joining Regora, how culture is going to work. They already have a culture. Um, it's it, from what I can see thus far, it looks like a great one. I'm obviously thinking about, you know, what that sales culture is going to look like, you know, six, 12 months from now. Um, but when I think about it, you know, in terms of just organic authenticity, one of the things that you can't do is prescribe culture, right? Like you can prescribe metrics and measurables and a lot of other things in sales, but you can't prescribe it. It needs to be organic. There needs to be some foundational elements, you know, in terms of just general positivity, professional courtesy and diversity. I think those are all accelerants, you know, in terms of having a good culture. Um, but the thing that I like to stress to certainly new employees, but the group at large is think about culture as more of a bottoms up than a top down mentality. And what I mean by that is when you say those actual words, you're reinforcing a couple of really important themes. One of which is that culture is on all of us, right? If we're all sitting here expecting the company we work for to create this dynamic culture out of a boardroom or a couple of meetings, that's not realistic, right? Like that's not how culture happens. The other thing that happens when you say those words out loud, whether that's to your team that's in place or candidates as you're interviewing them, is now you're creating almost a responsibility, obligation, might be too strong of a word, um, but it's on everybody to carry the culture flag and not wait for the company to deliver it. And uh, what that does is it empowers people, you know, and you really start to see cultural elements reveal themselves when you have that as sort of the, the backbone of how you think about culture. What kinds of things have you seen get in the way um, to building a strong culture? Yeah, I think a lot of times it can be over-engineered, um, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing because there's a commitment and an emphasis around it. Um, but when theme themes or, or factors um, going into building culture seem too artificial and manufactured, you know, I think it, it becomes less about employee interests and ambitions. Um, the other thing that can be really dangerous is, is letting the old ways of thinking prevail, right? Or squeaky wheels get, you know, too much of a, a forum to um, impact other employees. So there's, you know, I think a lot of people when you join companies that like to tell you, this is the way that we used to do things. And I think there's a lot of value, right? And in, in understanding that, but it's limited, right? And it won't always serve you in terms of thinking about how you want to do things in the future. Um, so those are some of the things that, that I try to stay away from. And the other is, is um, it's really easy for, I think, managers who are, who are newer in their career um, or they come from a place where they were an individual contributor and now they're managing a group of what are mainly peers. It becomes really hard to sort of nip, you know, some of those, those bad, um, you know, office behaviors in the bud. 
right? And that could just be the way that people speak in, in a casual or dismissive tone. It could be speaking about the organization in the sense of like, hey, you know, we're doing our thing. It's kind of us versus them. So I think, you know, having sort of the courage to speak up and it's not about making an example out of an individual, but it's about pulling someone aside in real time and, and letting them know that, hey, look, you know, I know that you've um, earned an opportunity to have a voice. You know, you've been successful here, but at the same token, the words that you use in public forums are, um, are heard by other people and you're impressionable, right? So they're impressionable. So if you reinforce that, you know, there's certain guidelines with how they should act and, and making sure that um, they generally are, are trying to be positive and influence people in a positive way, then I think, you know, that's one of those things that it's, it's not like this, um, you know, really dynamic cultural program, but that's an element of culture is ensuring that people bring positive energy to the office. And if you're letting people who constantly want to do things the way we did them five years ago, or, or allowing, you know, people that have sort of negative energy, um, provide them a microphone. Those are ways that you can really suck the life out of positive culture. That's an interesting take because I think anyone listening to this has heard the, well, I've been here for three years and this is how we do things right. And, and, and open meetings and public forums. And I think there's kind of a difference there, right? There's the, we used to do it this way, so we should keep doing it that way moving forward versus another way of looking at it is this is the way we've currently, or this is the way we've previously done it. Let's look at why that worked and maybe we can replicate, you know what I mean? The, the source of it or kind of the true value and maybe a different format. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like taking the, taking the root of it and then letting it evolve over time as the company grows and changes. Yeah. And I, I think with, uh, with people that have that sort of mindset, um, they were probably really positive forces in, in bringing, you know, sort of um, growth and, you know, structure and process to the organization in the past. Now, while they may be a little bit set in those ways, I think by empowering them and investing in them and ensuring that their voice can be heard, you can sort of extract some of that positive behavior and redirect it in a way that's that's more creative to the future. Right, right. And if we if we double down on culture, things like accountability, transparency, and healthy competition are are typically part of it. Can you break down, Steve, what those look like for you on a daily basis? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think on accountability, to me, it 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 really starts with communication. Um, you know, I thinking about this, you know, primarily from a sales leadership perspective. But you know, if you're consistent about communication and expectations, and you're doing those things throughout the sales sales organization, I think it becomes really easy to see where there are gaps in productivity and or competency because everyone is working off the same level of expectations. Um, and I think you know, as we you know find new forms of technology you know, Slack, Zoom, um, it gets easier and easier to sort of miss things from a communication standpoint, right? Because more of these things are being done um, digitally and being done in sort of an automated fashion. Having that sort of human to human connection and reinforcing very human elements of a sales culture is, is going to be even more important as technology becomes more pervasive. So that's how I think about um, accountability. In terms of competition, 
you know, this is one of the things I'm really passionate about is that healthy competitive spirit is really one of the biggest tools that any sales leader can leverage throughout their career. Um, and what I mean, competitive spirit, I think it's just one of those elements that if you can tap into your team's sort of collective competitive drive, you know, that is the opportunity that allows you to up level the group in such a scalable way, right? Because if you think about each individual contributor, they have their own set of skills, their own behaviors, right? Their own sort of ambitions and coaching for the most part is very individualized. But I think there are, um, you know, really unique ways that you can galvanize the team as a whole, right? And that's sort of raising the entire team uh, in a way that, you know, is so much more scalable than all of the one-on-ones you do and everything else that's required. So, um, you know, you can do this in a number of different ways, whether it's weekly and monthly challenges. Um, but I think that the ultimate key in terms of unlocking that competitive spirit is, you know, it's working when, um, you know, you're creating sort of this emotional connection between your sales organization and the company's short and long-term goals, right? And that's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, because people are motivated by different things and people are at different stages of their career um, and people are receptive to, you know, different types of sort of coaching and, and, um, you know, management style. But I think that's, um, that's a really critical piece of, of thinking about leadership and, and raising the collective profile of the group is again, sort of just creating that emotional connection between our ongoing efforts and how that ties into the company's overall performance. Do you have any examples of specific programs or initiatives um, that you put in place in any of your experiences that uh, were particularly successful in driving some of that healthy competition? Oh, I mean, there's, there's tons of them. I think, you know, sales leaders do these um, instinctively all the time. You know, there's, um, it's always a good idea to take feedback from your team. You know, I think, a lot of times sales leaders get really comfortable in sort of their same routine of, of setting aside budget dollars for spiffs and, you know, arranging a pool of money for, you know, your top quarterly performer or your top BDR. And I think those are great, but I think in the same token, um, you know, those um, are isolating in the sense where if you have a larger sales organization, there's only three or four or five people in that top rung it, it can be challenging um, for people that are either new in their career there or that are middle of the pack to sort of see a path to sort of participating in that. So, you know, whatever you do, I think it has to be more inclusive um, and something that's uh, that really gets the entire group going. Um, I'll give an example of something that, you know, someone who used to work on my team did. Um, and it's, I think you guys know her, her name's, Jill Harris. She's a, a sales director over at Log Me In. Jill is a fantastic leader and I think does a great job of uh, challenging her sales organization with different initiatives. Again, that tied to sort of the broader sales uh, philosophy or goals. So when we were rolling out um, a platform, which you guys are very familiar with, what we wanted to do was increase the adoption of, uh, of Gong during our pilot. So one of the things that Jill did is uh, used bingo, like gamifying essentially, you know, some of the uh, tactical behavior with outbound calls and 
the types of things that you actually needed to be able to do with inside the system and sort of gamified that got a bunch of people involved. People were, you know, all of a sudden, you know, slacking and talking about um, how they were progressing against the, the bingo gamification of the rollout of this tool. And, and that's just really a simple anecdote, right? In terms of taking something that was really important to us as a sales culture, which is, you know, ongoing coaching and development um, and infusing something that was a little bit more fun that got a number of people involved in order to sort of drive a behavior that was really important to our, our long-term development of the sales team. Awesome. So earlier this year, you published an article on LinkedIn, um, which was all about being committed to a customer-centric mindset. And, you know, there's a variety of things that you could have really been focused on, but being customer-centric is what stood out to you. And could you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you? Why do you value that um, as such a top priority? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things um, when I was coming back from SKO this year, um, first of all, I, I love sales kickoffs and I think they're, they're a great way to energize the group and, and sort of reflect on what you've accomplished um, and really set the charter for the future. But, you know, there's um, so much information, right. And so much production uh, that goes into these that, you know, I sort of sat there thinking, you know, if I'm, a salesperson sitting out in the crowd, what is the most important thing that they took away from the last three or four days, right? If I'm a sales leader asking that question, um, it's that they come away a little refreshed. It's that they come energized, but they're thinking about our products through the lens of our customers. And I think it's, it's easy to forget that when we're pounding you with features and new innovation and awards and all the things that go on at SKO. Um, so it was one of those things that, you know, I wanted to, to write on LinkedIn because it's, again, people are selling to people, right? Yes, you sell products, but at the end of the day, it's about that relationship and that connection and the engagement between individuals that allow them to buy your software or something else. So I think it's, it's easy to get distracted um, because of everything else that's thrown at salespeople, but bringing them back to sort of that core mindset of thinking about your products through the lens of the people that you're talking to, put yourself in their shoes, right? And don't think of it as a transaction. Don't think of it as an exchange of, of, you know, just valued services and money. Think about the real world business problem that you're solving for them how that impacts them in their career and what that's going to do for their company. That's terrific. And, and I think a piece of advice is as you're planning kickoffs or other training sessions um, is what is that one takeaway that you want attendees to leave with that you want your reps to leave with? Because uh, a lot of these sessions can be overwhelming. Uh, there's a ton of information that can be exchanged and a lot of that you can go back to and refer to after, but what is the overarching theme and the important thing that you can't just read in a one pager uh, that is the essence of that event or that session or that training? Well, I think a lot of um, sales kickoffs are evolving, right? And you're starting to see more participants uh, show up at these events. And when I say show up, I mean, they're being invited because the event itself is evolving and, you know, I'll give you ours, for example, uh, last year at Log Me In, you see a number of technology companies doing this 
is that they're evolving into go-to-market kickoffs where they're including people from marketing. There may be some people from product there. Customer success is, again, another really important lever in that whole process uh, because that goes back to the customer-centric mindset that it takes a number of people across the organization to drive that, that experience that ultimately gives you um, you know, high customer approval and repeat customers and sort of that viral aspect to what you're doing. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, you'll continue to see evolve is who attends those events and really what companies are looking to get out of them. I think it's becoming less of just the sales boondoggle where you send everyone to, uh, you know, climate friendly destinations and, um, you know, you have a fun time for a few days and, and, you know, do an award show. I think it is more about resetting, you know, sort of the corporate vision in terms of what we want that customer experience and that journey to be. Very true. It's got to be a balance. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. We're going to go into our wrap up question, Steve. So we've got two more for you. The first one is what's your advice for sales leaders in terms of what they should be working on in 2020? Ooh. I think that question probably is very different depending upon, you know, what type of company you're working for and what size organization you're working for. Um, you know, I think for folks that are in similar positions to me, um, you know, early stage companies, series a, maybe you figured out the product market fit, uh, but not much else, you know, it's going to be a lot about creating a world-class sales organization or go to market team. And what I mean by that is one where um, people want to come work and they want to join what you're doing uh, because they, they kind of see and feel, you know, what is, is transpiring within those four walls. But behind the scenes, what really has to happen is you need to be able to create a repeatable and predictable sales motion um, that has just as much value for the customer as it, as it does for the employer. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I'm going to be focused on this year, um, is really trying to sort of nail that sales motion and, and figure out, um, like you guys do so well at Gong, which is provide meaningful content and insights to the market that make it easy for the, the various real estate market participants, uh, and, and my team to be able to start exchanging ideas and building relationships. And then the last question for you, Steve, this is a hot take, no pressure. How would you describe sales in one word? One word. I would have to say people. Sales is a profession. You know, it's interesting. I think, you know, over the last 10 years, we've heard a lot about how uh, the buying behavior has shifted, right? Where there's so much more available information to them that by the time they make a connection with a salesperson that they're 30, 40, 50% of the way through the buying process. Um, and I think that that's been pervasive over the last 10 years or so. And I think it's very true by the way. And, and I think it's a good thing, right? I think it's good that consumers now have all this information and insight relatively uh, easy to access. Um, the flip side of that, is um, there's so much more technology and enablement that is making a salesperson's life better, more sustainable, 
And, um, you know, I think it's just added a ton to the profession. So it's almost balanced out a little bit by having great sales enablement tools. And, you know, I think you guys are revenue intelligence, right? That's sort of another offshoot. But regardless of all of that, it still comes down to developing great relationships. It comes down to building trust and empathy and, you know, ensuring that the people that you're doing business with understand that it's not just about the product or service. It's about entering into a partnership and a relationship with another organization. And to do that, there still needs to be personal connection. So maybe a little bit long-winded, but I would still say sales to me is about people. Love it. That's a, that's a great wrap to this uh, conversation and ties to, I think, everything that we've talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Steve, for joining us today. You definitely brought it. We covered mentorship, culture, competition, and more plenty for the listeners. So we appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, Devin, Sheena. Um, you guys are great. I'm huge fans of what you guys are doing at Gong. Tell them I said hello. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking to you guys soon, but appreciate the time. Steven shared actionable advice for how to best leverage your mentor so you're maximizing their time and expertise. So for this week's micro action, I want to take that advice and make it extra actionable for you. So let's break it down. Here are a few things that you can do on your next mentorship call. First, set or reset expectations with yourself, then share those expectations with your mentor. You want to align internally before you align externally. Ask yourself, why is this specific person your mentor? What are you hoping to learn from them? And how often do you plan to meet? Make sure the last one is realistic. As Steven said, these are typically highly successful and very busy people. While they care about you and your success, it isn't their day job to coach you. That leads to the next point, how to maximize their time. Just like you'd plan for a meeting or presentation, plan for your next mentorship meeting. Use self-reflection and take the time to really think through where you need help. This activity itself will provide clarity for you. The clearer you can articulate where you are and where you're trying to get to, the easier it will be for them to jump in and provide direct and accurate advice. Part of this is asking pointed questions, like Steven said. For example, don't ask, how can I be a better leader? Instead, provide a specific element of being a better manager that you're struggling with or proactively seeking to improve. Then provide a specific example. From there, you can ask questions like, what should I do next time? What could I have done better? And even, how have you built this skill? Then turn on your active listening. This preparation shows you're committed to progress and reflects your dedication and appreciation to their time. In my experience, both as a mentor and mentee, mentors want to invest in people who take this process seriously. If you're committed to making the most of your mentor relationship, now you have a step-by-step plan to do so. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.